And as you guys take a seat, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We are starting our series on parables. We are going to be studying the parables throughout the summer. So we are beginning our first parable this uh, Sunday morning. Um, Last Sunday we looked at what a parable is. We kind of did some introductory remarks to what parables are, why Jesus spoke in parables. We looked at the conflicts that led to Jesus speaking in parables. We looked at what a parable is, uh, two Greek words, uh, para, uh, beside, um, alongside, and balo, to throw. So this is a story that is thrown alongside a spiritual reality such that we can understand that spiritual reality uh, in a better way. These are stories that are drawn, uh, they're drawing truth from a commonplace reality and, and showing us that spiritual truth. Jesus is a master storyteller, but these stories are not told simply to illustrate the truth, even though they do that. They are told ultimately in divine judgment to confound those who think that they know the truth, who are seen but not seen, who hear but do not hear. And so we spent all of last Sunday and and Thursday night looking at how we can make sure we are not doing that. That we look at the glory of God, but we truly behold it and we're truly changed by it. We asked the question, why are we doing this series? Why are we going through the parables? Um, We gave three reasons. Number one, there's nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus and letting him be our teacher. And that's what we get to do every time we open the word of God. But specifically here, every time we open and we get to listen to Jesus speak in parables It's going to be a great opportunity to just sit at his feet and press in to what he's saying. A second reason is many people have a uh, a misunderstanding of why parables even exist, which is why we spent last Sunday going through why they have um, their their conception in Matthew chapter 13 based on what happened in Matthew chapter 12. So we looked at that beginning of Jesus speaking in parables. The third reason is many parables are familiar to us. Other than the prodigal son, maybe this morning, this parable, the Good Samaritan, is the most familiar parable that we would all claim to know. There are familiar ones. There are some parables that aren't familiar, but one of the reasons why we wanted to press into the parables and the study of parables is because the familiar ones, we want to hit refresh and and really ask, do we know the meaning? Do we see the truth? And those that we're not as familiar with, we want to ask why. Um, probably because they're a little bit harder to dive into and understand. Our familiarity with this parable before us, our familiarity with it, may cause us to think that we know the story better than we actually do. For instance, if I were to ask, why did Jesus teach the parable of the Good Samaritan? Most people would say that the moral of the story is be nice to people who are hurting. Be kind. Be gracious. Show kindness to strangers. And yes, it's definitely saying that. There's no doubt that this parable says that. But this parable says infinitely more than simply we should love those who are next to us, who are hurting, who are struggling. The real point of this parable becomes totally clear when we pay attention to the immediate context. So what I want to do is I want to read this section, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. I want to read it. We'll get the whole flow of what happens in this moment. We'll ask the Lord's uh, blessing on our time together, and then we'll dive in. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Father, what an amazing section of scripture. May we hear your son clearly speak. Not be like the lawyer who, while hearing, he didn't hear. While seeing, he didn't see. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. As we sit at the feet of our Savior. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. This parable, we're just going to divide this whole account into three main sections. We've got the setup, we've got the story, we've got the so what. Just very clearly, the setup, the story, and the so what. Let's talk about the setup. Here's the setup. You have to have the setup to understand the story and the so what. Here's the setup. Verse 25 through verse 29 is our setup. A lawyer, that's not a lawyer the way that we would think of a lawyer, that's an expert in the law. Somebody who is an expert in the Torah, you can just put in your Bible, a professional theologian. This guy knows the Bible. And he stands up, And he puts Jesus to the test. So scripture makes the point of the man's insincerity in this question. He puts Jesus to the test. By the way, that's something that we should never do whenever you see anybody trying to outsmart Jesus who knows everything and is the creator of the world. They're always going to fail. We will always lose if we're trying to put Jesus to the test. So don't do that. Don't ever try and put Jesus to the test. You will always lose like this man loses. So he tries to put Jesus to the test. And what happens? He starts by asking a question. And this is his question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice three things about this question. This lawyer, this professional theologian stands up and puts Jesus to the test and asks a question that we need to notice three things about. Number one, this is the greatest, most important question that anyone could ever ask. This is the most important question that needs to be answered clearly. J.C. Ryle says it this way. This question deserves the principal attention of every man, woman, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after our death. How shall our sins be pardoned? How shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Where shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which every person 
of every rank ought to put themselves to and never rest until they find an answer. So this, even though this is a question coming from a bad motivation, this is a very good question. This is a serious question. How can I have eternal life? But notice number two, not only is this the most important question that's ever going to be asked or answered, but number two, it's asked in a very wrong way because the man says, what can I do? This is exactly the same question that the rich young ruler said in Matthew 19. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Give me things to do. I'm good enough to earn heaven. I just know I haven't found what it is I need to do to get there. So please just tell me the things that I need to do because I know I can do them. What are the things? Jesus says, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And the man answers, again, a professional in the word of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's right. Remember, Jesus himself answered a question. How, how do you synthesize all the laws of God? What's, what's the whole point? What does God, what's the greatest commandment? You remember Jesus answers that in Matthew 22. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says exactly the same thing. Love the Lord your God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this man's asking the greatest question that needs to be asked and answered. This man is asking it in a very wrong way by saying, I can do something. I'm good enough to do something. But notice number three, he knows the right answer to this question. He knows the answer. Jesus says, you are correct. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If you want to do things to get to heaven, you know exactly what you need to do. You need to perfectly do those things. Keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Ten Commandments. Love God, love people, right? Commandment number one through four is all about loving God and honoring Him. Commandment number five through ten is all about loving our neighbors. Jesus says, that's it. If you can do that perfectly, you can have eternal life. So, as this man sets the stage for what Jesus is going to say, you have to realize that this man is asking the greatest question that there is, But he's asking it with the intent of saying, I can do things. I'm good enough. Like the rich young ruler, what must I do? And Jesus asks, are you really even that good? And number three, we need, before we move on, we need to notice that this man knows the right answers. You can know the right answers, but still not do it. This man knows exactly what should be done, but he isn't doing it. In fact, isn't it often the case, especially with, Pharisees, they know the scriptures better than anybody else does, but they just simply aren't doing what the scripture says. It's not ultimately about having the right answer. We we attempt to gain a greater knowledge of God, but that's not the reason. That's not the end. The end is not just gaining knowledge about who God is. The end is doing the right thing based on the knowledge that we've been given. If we just gain more knowledge but don't live any differently, then we have seen without seeing. We have heard without truly hearing. This is why we talked last week about looking and beholding. You cannot behold without looking. You need to know the truth in order to behold and live differently. But oh, you can know the truth. You can look without beholding. This man does exactly that. He knows the truth. But he does not live according to it. 
So Jesus answers and he says, you've answered correctly, verse 28. Do this and you will live. If you want eternal life, your way, then obey the law perfectly. What should the man's response have been? His answer should have clearly been, but I can't do that. I've never once been able to do that. I've never been able to love God perfectly or love my neighbor perfectly. Now what do I do? If that's the way to gain eternal life and I haven't done that, now what do I do? But instead, and Luke helps us here in verse 29, but he heard the condemnation. He heard, okay, I can't keep the law. But instead of submitting himself to the fact that I have lost in the perfect morality category. I am not holy. Instead, he wants to prove that he is. Instead of hearing the law and seeing the mirror of the law placed in front of him and saying, okay, I can't measure up to that. I have never once been able to love God the way I should or love people the way I should. I am undone in my sin. Now what do I do? Instead of doing that, I think in his heart of hearts, maybe he's completely self-deceived, but I think in his heart of hearts, maybe he knows I can't do that perfect Lee, I can't totally do that. But he says, I'm going to justify myself in in front of everybody. I want them to know I I think I can. I think I can do that. So it says, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Instead of saying, God, I need help. Jesus, I need help. I can't do that fully. I can't do that perfectly. Instead of being leveled by the standard needed to attain eternal life, He wants to vindicate himself and say, I'm really not that bad. He wants to make himself look good in others' eyes, wishing to justify himself in front of everybody around him and in front of Jesus himself. This is exactly what every legalist loves to do, right? I want to make myself look good in front of you. Legalists hate looking bad in front of other people. Notice even his question proves this. He just wants to look good in front of others. He doesn't, he doesn't ask, okay, who is, how do I love God the way I'm supposed to love God? How do I press into doing that the way? And then how do I love my neighbor as myself? How am I supposed to do that? He forgets God entirely. Well, God can't really see him. Don't really need to worry about that. I just need to save face in front of everybody. I need to look good in loving my neighbor. He just moves straight to loving neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Doesn't even ask, how do I love God? How do I do that perfectly? He just wants to look good in front of other people. And so he says, okay, who's my neighbor? Notice two things about this question. Number one, this idea of neighbor was a hot button issue in uh, in Israel in that time. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 43? Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. That's what the rabbis had taught. If you have a neighbor, if you have somebody who is neighborly towards you, that loves you, then you need to love them back. But if you have somebody who's your enemy, you get to hate them. That was the common teaching of the day. So this lawyer says, okay, who's my neighbor? He wants to show that he knows the rabbinical definition of neighbor. And really, ultimately, it boils down to this. Somebody who loves you and somebody that you like, that's your neighbor. Love them. Somebody that you don't like, somebody that doesn't like you, that's not your neighbor. You get to hate them. So this is already coming from a legalistic place. But number two, notice this is the wrong question to ask. Who is my neighbor? The man is saying, tell me who I have to love such that I don't expend any energy on loving people that I don't have to love. This is like when I would ask my parents, 
They would say, clean your room, Patrick. And before, in my wonderful heart of virtue and righteousness, before saying, I will gladly do that, I said, "Um, can you please define for me what's clean? Tell me what's clean. Because if clean to you is just get your clothes up off of the floor and put them in the hamper, then that's all I'm doing. I don't want to be vacuuming. I don't want to be dusting. I don't want to be doing other things that I don't need to do if you only want me to pick up the clothes off of the floor. Defining, tell me the bare minimum of what I need to do because I don't want to do anything above that or beyond that. This is the wrong question. This man is carving up all of humanity into groups, some of whom are worthy of love and others who are not. This is the wrong question, proving yet again this is coming from a very stingy heart that doesn't want to go over and above in love. How is Jesus going to respond? You know, in essence, Jesus responds by actually modeling for us what he's going to teach us. Instead of saying, okay, this question's coming from the wrong place. You think you're good, but you're not. Here's what the law says. You've never kept it. You're a failure. You're a sinner. You cannot get to God on your own. Instead of just, he asks a question. He graciously models exactly what he's going to teach us. The principle of love and of grace. Jesus is going to be tender-hearted, long-suffering, kind, not harsh or rebuking, even though the man totally deserves a rebuke. Jesus, in kindness and compassion, is going to tell a story in answer to this man's question. Who is my neighbor? Jesus says, let me tell you a story. So that's the setup. We have our lawyer. We have Jesus setting up this story. Let's look at the story. Number two, the story itself. Verses 30 through 35. Jesus replies to the man's question. Who is my neighbor? And he says, a man. A man. We don't have the clarification that this is a Jewish man, but... More than likely, since the setting is in Israel, since he's coming from Jerusalem and a whole host of other things, just based on the narrative and based on the context of where Jesus is, this is a Jewish man. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, going down, that's down in elevation, Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 4,000 foot drop across a 17 mile road. You're, You're going down in elevation. This is a very dangerous road. Even today, this road... Uh, when, I, when I've driven on it on a, uh, in a bus, I feel like the bus is going to fall off the side of the road. There are cliffs about three to 500 feet high that you just look like you're about to fall off. There's a lot of caves. There's a lot of boulders. It's a great place to hide, to um, sneak up on somebody and to rob them. That's exactly what's going to happen. During festival season, this road was jam-packed with people, and they were always taking care of each other in caravans. But if it wasn't festival season... Not many people were going on this road. This is a dangerous road. And so we have a Jewish man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers and they stripped him and they beat him. So they take everything away from him and they leave him half dead. He's dying. But Jesus brings three people into the story alongside this Jewish man. The first is a priest. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, this is a very strange thing for this 
priest to do. This priest is a servant of God. This priest is somebody who offers sacrifices for the people in the temple. He represents the best of men. He knew the law. He knew Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him and surely release it. So if that's what you're supposed to do with your enemy's animals, then you should definitely take care of a living human here who is at the doorstep of death. We would, we would think that we have great hope for this man. Fell among robbers, left half dead, and a priest shows up. But what does Jesus say? He passed by. He sees him, but he passed by on the other side. That word passed by in the Greek it's found nowhere else in the entire Bible except for this story, once in verse 31 and once in verse 32. Pass by. It is on the other side, as far opposite as you can get, in a voicing that means you're, you, you are intent only on getting as far away as possible from this man. To the exact opposite of the road, to the exact opposite of this man, on the other side, he walks away. Secondly, in verse 32, we meet a Levite. And he comes to the place and he sees the man. But he does the exact same thing. He passed by on the other side. So we have a priest and we have a Levite. What's the difference? Uh, Priests were Levites, um, but they were also descendants of Aaron. So priests were descendants of Aaron. Levites are descendants from the tribe of Levi, but not descendants of of Aaron. They're servants in the temple. They would assist the priests. They were devoted to religious service. And yet, they are not devoted to serving those around them in their greatest time of need. Turn back to Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus says this, At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you've revealed them to infants. Maybe Jesus is using the priest to be the wise man and the Levite to be the intelligent man. They've been hidden. The truth has been hidden from them. They pass by. They're both totally missing the point. These are religious officers. They serve in the temple And they're missing the point that James is going to tell us in James chapter 1, verse 27, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is taking care of people. They don't do it. The third person that we meet is a Samaritan. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Samaritans were hated by Jews. Consequently, they didn't really like the Jews that much themselves. They were hated by the Jews. In fact, Jews would take this exact road from Jerusalem to Jericho and then cross over the Jordan River just so that they could bypass Samaria entirely. If they needed to go up to Galilee from Jerusalem, they wouldn't just go straight up through Samaria to Galilee. They would cross over the Jordan River on what's called the Transjordanian Highway and go up so they wouldn't even need to be in Samaria at all. They hated Samaritans. Why? Samaritans were descendants of Israelites who had intermarried with pagan people. When Assyria conquered the northern tribes in 722 and Babylon conquered the southern tribes in 586, they took them away. And there were some Jews that said, we are not going to bow, we're not going to intermarry, we're not going to do any form of compromising. 
There were other Jews that said it's fine. Found somebody, fell in love with them, and they would intermarry with pagan, idolatrous people. And the descendants of those marriages was the Samaritans. And they're going all the way back to when Ezra and Nehemiah came back. Ezra came back to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah came back to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. Even going all the way back to that moment, the Samaritans wanted to help the Jews when they were rebuilding all those things. And the Jews said, no, you're defiled. You're not allowed to help at all. Remember a guy named Sanballat in Nehemiah chapter 4? He rallied the Samaritans to say, look, if they're not going to let us help build the the walls in Jerusalem, let's tear them all down then. Let's just stand in their way. There was always a vicious, angry hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. Samaritans were worse than pagans in the Jews' eyes because they had polluted their religion. They had squandered the beautiful heritage that they had. So what would we expect the Samaritan to do when he falls upon this man on a journey? I think he'd be happy. In this story, we would expect him to be happy. Yes, one of my enemies is dying. Maybe he would even finish the job. Let's kill him. But what happens? Obviously, since we would think that the priest and the Levite would help, but they didn't, if we think that the Samaritan's not going to help, he's going to. A Samaritan who was on a journey... He had a place to be. Maybe it's business, maybe it's pleasure, but he had somewhere he was going. He came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. So he sees him just like the Levite and the priest did, but what's different is compassion. He loves this man, even though he is his enemy. And what does he do? His love doesn't just stay in his heart or his mind. Oh, I feel bad for him, but I'm sorry, I I don't have time, I can't take care of him. Verse 34, notice what he does. In all of these amazing descriptions, he bears this man's burden as if it were his own. He says, I'll help you in any way possible. He bandaged up his wounds. Whatever helped to heal this man came solely from the Samaritan, right? Because the, the man had everything taken away. So whatever is going to be help, helping this man um, gain his strength, be nursed back to health, It's coming straight from the Samaritan's pockets. So, he bandages up his wounds. He pours oil that would be a soothing balm. It would soften the tissue. And he pours wine on the wounds. That's an antiseptic. It would sanitize the wounds. And he put the man on his own beast. So he's on a journey. He has a donkey or a mule. and, And what he's doing here is giving up his ride. I'm going to put the the Jewish man on my ride and I'm going to walk the rest of the way. I'm going to walk the rest of the journey. Puts him on his beast and he brings him to an inn and he takes care of him. He brings him to an inn and verse 35 says that on the next day, so he spent the night with him taking care of him. If you've ever been in the hospital at the bedside of somebody who is about to pass away or close at death's doorstep. You know what this is like. This is not a restful night. This is wondering, as you're watching the chest go up and down, is that the last time I'm going to see this person take a breath? You don't get any sleep. You're always trying, if there's a moan or if there's a a, a face, a movement of discomfort, what can I do to help? This man only cares about this poor Jewish man who had been beaten 
and left for dead. He takes care of him all through the night. On the next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii, that's two days wages, which doesn't sound like too much, but that would be about two months stay room and board in an inn. So this is a lot more than just one night's worth of staying at an inn. He took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Notice he opens himself up for extortion here, for just being taken advantage of. Whatever more that you spend, I will repay. Well, I I had to spend it on a new iPad mini. I had to. I I had to spend it on a brand new uh, plasma screen, flat screen TV. I had to. It was a necessity in order for this man to be nursed back to health. Whatever you spend, I'll pay you back when I return. So I'm coming back. I'm not just going to say, I hope and pray this man makes it, but I have somewhere I have to be. I'm out of here and I'll be praying for this man. No, I'm going to come back and make sure he's okay. All of these descriptions are Jesus trying to show us this man lavishes love on this poor Jewish man who fell into the robber's hands. That's the story. That's the story that Jesus tells. He cares for this man far above his own needs, has no self-preservation, only self-depletion in the service of loving this Jewish man. So we have the setup to the story. We have the story itself. And now, so what? Verses 36 through 37. Jesus tells the story, and then he asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Did you catch what Jesus did? This is not the answer to the man's original question. The lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't answer that question. Jesus doesn't say, here is the person who is your neighbor. Jesus completely flips the question around and he asks, who was neighborly in this story? Who was neighborly? Not who is the neighbor, but who was neighborly? Who loved? The lawyer asks, tell me who I have to love. And Jesus asks the lawyer, do you even have love for the people that are around you? Would you even love people if I told you who you are supposed to love? He completely flips the question around, doesn't answer the lawyer's question, but rephrases it and answers a completely different question. The lawyer thought, look, if you just tell me who my neighbors are, I will love them perfectly. And Jesus says, will you? If I tell you who your neighbors are, are you really even going to love them? Are you neighborly? Why did Jesus do this? Again, most people would say that this story is just about taking care of people in need. And it's definitely not not that. But it's so much more than that. Jesus is answering the lawyer's first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do you even have enough love in your heart to love the people around you? No, you do not. Therefore, you cannot keep these laws perfectly. The lawyer thought that he was good enough to do things to get to heaven. And Jesus' story is the mirror of the law held up in front of this lawyer. To say, you don't love anybody the way that you're supposed to. You don't love anybody like... Look at the way that this Samaritan is loving this Jewish man. We don't love anybody like that. That's not entirely true. There is one person that we always love like that. Ourselves. 
This is why Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2, don't just look out for your own interests. You're always doing that anyway. Look out for the interests of others. Look out for the interests of others. You may lavish love on your friends, your family. Father's Day, you get together and lavish love on one another. You may even lavish love on a stranger, somebody that you don't know, but you see them in need. But that's not the story that Jesus told. Who would lavish love on their bitter enemy like this? Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. While we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves us like this man. Just think about this man, this Jewish man. He's left for dead. He's as good as dead. He has nothing to offer anybody. Nobody walking by. He can't yell out to the priest, hey, can you help me? I've got some money in return for help. He can't yell out to the Levite, hey, if you can help nurse me back to strength, I'll do service in the temple. I'll help out in any way possible. No, he's left for dead. He can't walk. He doesn't walk. He's not even able to get up onto a donkey. The Samaritan has to do that for him. He doesn't take one single step the entire story. All the work is done for him by the Samaritan. That's us. We are left for dead, beaten up by sin, with no hope whatsoever of ever being able to call out to God and say, I'll do something to earn your favor. And the Samaritan in this story is, look at what he does, just like Jesus. He sees, he lavishes love, he cleans him, he pays every penny, he cares for him. Even when he leaves, he leaves help for him. Just like we've been studying in the Gospel of John, Jesus leaves the helper to take care of us. Just like the Good Samaritan, Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He knows that we never could. He doesn't bend over the Jewish man and say, hey, can you hear me? If you can stand up, that would be great. I can't pick you up. Oh, you can't stand? Oh, I guess I'll just have to wait until you've got strength to stand. He doesn't do that. He picks him up. He puts him on his own beast. He takes him to the inn. Every other religion in the world has man in the gutter, getting out of the gutter on their own and getting to heaven. Only Christianity has heaven coming down to the gutter. I'll I'll come get you. I'll come save you. That's why instead of like this lawyer who is legalist 101, justifying himself in front of man, I just want to look good. Instead of doing that, since we know that Jesus loved us and took care of us while we were completely unlovely, we can do what Martin Luther tells us to do. He, He says, sin boldly. That's a a very strange phrase. I mean, that kind of goes against Romans 6, right? Do we sin so that grace men abound? Never be. I don't think that's what Martin Luther is saying. He's not saying just keep on sinning. What he's saying is you can admit your sin with boldness. You can totally admit to people, I am absolutely, devastatingly messed up and in need of grace. I can sin boldly because I have a Savior who comes and he cleans me with boldness. Jesus is proving in this story 
that anyone who is a sinner is ripe for righteousness to be given to your account. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody can say, I'm doing better. The lawyer's trying. I'm better than you are. But nobody can say that. It's like John 8. You remember the woman caught in adultery? Um, Jesus scribbles in the sand and everybody starts to leave. And, and he says, I'm not condemning you. Nobody else is condemning you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not saying that this woman doesn't deserve death. She deserves death. What Jesus is saying is that everybody in the crowd deserves death too. We're all worthy of death. And Jesus alone is our only hope. Most people, like this lawyer, assume that there's two categories. There's good people and there's bad people, right? You ask anybody on the side of the road, go to Starbucks, go somewhere and say, hey, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? Most people would say, I've tried to live a good life. Two categories, good person, bad person. And religion's bought into that. Religion just makes those two categories, people who are trying and religious and people who aren't trying. It's just good and bad people. Jesus comes along and says, there aren't two categories here. There's one category, and it's bad. Everybody's bad. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody that's good enough to get to heaven. That's what the lawyer had asked. What can I do to earn eternal life? Jesus says, there's no category of that person. There's only bad But Jesus, in his great love for us, says, I'll make another category. We'll call that category the gospel. I will do the good things that you could never do. I will earn your righteous standing before God that you never could on your own good works. And I will offer that to you. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to me. I'm not waiting until you get your act together. I'm waiting until you recognize your need that you could never get your act together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus makes an entirely new category. And that's what he's doing here with this lawyer. Which of these three, verse 36, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The man gets it. He says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. What's the so what? There's three steps inside of this parable that are clearly the application of what Jesus is trying to say. Number one, you have to recognize your need for a Savior. You have to recognize, unlike the lawyer, that you have nothing good to offer God. You can't do anything good to get to God on your own. So you recognize your need. Number two, you cling to Jesus through faith. You cling to the grace that He offers. You cling to His righteousness, not your own. And then, once you understand the grace that God has given to you in Jesus Christ, then you go and you do the same. Then you go and you do the same. See, most people would just say this parable is about going and doing the same, and you will live. Go and be nice and be kind and be generous to others, and you will gain favor before God. But that's not what this passage is saying. The law says, go and do this and you will live. Jesus, through the gospel, says, go and live like this because you've already been given life. I've already given you life. I cleaned you up. I nursed you back to health. Now go share that love with others. Go and live like this because Jesus loved you like this. 
So this morning, as we see the lawyer's question, I think we need to ask the question, not if, but when. When have we done that with Jesus? Do you stand before Jesus and and say, you know what, Uh, hold on, don't do the cleaning yet, I'm going to work on myself, I'll clean myself up, and then you'll love me because of what I've done. We all buy into that. We're all naturally born legalists. I think Jesus is inviting us in this parable to just lie down on the side of the road, beat up by our own sinful desires, and say, I'm going to die if it's not for Jesus coming. I'm going to die. And not try to get up. Let Jesus pick you up. Let Jesus carry you and wear your burden as his own. We sang about that. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. He took my sin. He took my sorrow. You don't need to do that. And you can't do that. Recognize your need for a Savior. And then let this story grow your affections for Jesus. Think about how Jesus loved you while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God. He said, I see you, I feel compassion, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to meet every need that you have. And I'm going to give you life. Only then should you read that last sentence in verse 37. Go and do the same. If you have been affected by grace, go and be gracious. If you've been loved by Jesus the way you have been loved, go and love others that way. We talked about this already with fathers and Father's Day. This is a Father's Day passage for us dads. Dads, you know how you've been loved by God. Your kids should see the love that God gave to you in the way that you love them. But it's not just dads that need to hear that message. It's every believer who's been loved by Jesus, who has received grace through Christ alone. When we're tempted to ask, okay, just tell me the bare minimum. Who's my neighbor? We should hear Jesus saying, hmm, are you even neighborly? If I gave you the list, would you even be able to love that list perfectly? I don't think so. But if you recognize that you can't love perfectly and you get to live on the love of Jesus, then you can live out the love of Jesus. I pray that our church would do that every day to glorify Jesus and exalt his sacrifice, his death and resurrection and the way that he's loved us. God, thank you so much for your amazing love. It truly is amazing. We've sung about it. We're going to continue to sing about it because we can't get over it. We can't move on from it. And so, Father, I pray that unlike this lawyer, we would come to you not looking to test or to justify ourselves, but willingly admitting we are messed up. We are sinful. We are depraved to the core. And we can do nothing to get us a right standing before God. We need grace. God, you love to lavish grace upon those who plead for mercy. Make us a people who would plead for mercy every day and find it at the foot of the cross. And then may we, as those who have been forgiven much, may we forgive much. As those who have been loved much, may we love others much. As those who have been given grace 
May we bend that grace out to those around us. May there never be a category of people in our minds and our hearts that is undeserving of our love or unable to receive love from us. If you gave love even to your own enemy, then we need to love everyone around us. God, may we live on your love today and live out your love with one another. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.